Yesterday we saw the Buddha with his five ascetic or former ascetic companions in the deer park at Sarnath. And it's there that he delivers what one could well consider the core of his, of his vision, the four truths, no self. And this leads to, as we concluded yesterday, the statement, there were then six arahants in the world, six liberated, enlightened beings. And, of course, that also means, the subtext of that is that he had created a community, even today, for a a place to be considered an environment where Buddhism flourishes. Traditionally, that implies a community of at least five monks. So now we have that. And they're all shakyans. Four, five of them are Brahmins and Siddhartha is a Katya, a warrior. They spend the rains in Sanat and during that time a number of other townspeople, laymen from the nearby area come and listen to and also become interested in what he has to say, become converted, if we want to use that religious phrase. And by the end of the retreat, the end of the rains, there's quite a cluster of them, and they all then decide to move on together. So where do they go? The Buddha's headed from Uruvela, northwest to Benares. He's crossed the river. He's technically back in his own homeland of Kosala. But instead of returning to Shakya or to Sravasti, the capital city, he retraces his steps. He goes back to Uruvela, to Bodhgaya, where he had had his awakening. And from Uruvela, no doubt they spend some time there. The texts don't say anything about that period, they then head north to Gaya Sisa, to the mountain, which you can still visit today, called Gaya Head. And at Gaya Head, they meet a large community of um, matted hair ascetics who worship fire. So the third sermon begins... At this place, it says, When the Lord had stayed at Uruvela as long as he wished, he set out for Gaia Head, together with a large community of monks, a thousand of whom, we have to be very careful with this use of numbers. The Pali texts have a rather cavalier and imprecise sense of number. A thousand means really a lot. And he stayed in the region of Gaia with a thousand monks, a lot of monks, at Gaia Head. And then the Lord addressed the monks and said, Everything is burning. And what is it that is burning? The eyes are burning. Sights are burning. Vision is burning. 
visual contact is burning. Feelings which arise from that contact are burning. And likewise the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. Burning with what? They're burning with the fires of greed, the fires of hatred, the fires of delusion. They are burning with birth, aging and death, burning with sorrow and lamentation, with anguish, unhappiness and despair. This is a very famous image. Um, The idea that the world is somehow on fire. In some sense, of course, the world is, um, is burning up in each moment. It is consuming itself. It is somehow flourishing, appearing, only to vanish and to give rise to something else. As fire burns, it burns away something and what was there is gone. That's one sense of it. But I think the key sense is when he says these things are burning with the fires of greed, the fires of hatred, the fires of delusion. These are not intrinsic properties of the things themselves. But this is what happens when we somehow invest the world with the idea that this will satisfy me, this will hurt me, this will console me. We, as it were, consume things in this way. This has resonances very much with our current obsession with consumerism. A fire consumes, greed consumes the resources of the planet. Hatred consumes human life. It consumes places, cities, through violence, through war, and so on and so forth. The Buddha acknowledges that it's our relationship with the world that in addition to its own self-destructive but fortunately self-renewing capacity that we add on, we increase this consumption with our own greed and our own hatred. And it's in this sense that we can find the possibility of another relationship with that world should we see it in such a way. So seeing things in this way, he continues, the attentive noble disciple disengages from eyes, disengages from sights, disengages from visual consciousness and contact, from pleasant, painful and neutral feelings that arise with that contact. Disengaging, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, he is freed. He knows, I am free. So that's exactly the same conclusion as the previous discourse. So again, this vision of being in this world in a way in which we are not consumed by our compulsive reactivity regarding things, but we pull back to see things clearly, to see things more truly. And that is what allows the possibility of the kind of freedom that the Buddha teaches. From Gaia Head 
the group of monks, which, again, it's very difficult to get a clear figure, but quite some number of them now, head further northeast and return to Rajgaha, the capital of Magadha. And this, of course, is the greatest city, the most powerful urban center of its day, ruled by King Bimbisara, who, as we recall, had already noticed Siddhartha Gautama when he came through from Shakya, and now Siddhartha returns, this time with a following and also with this extraordinary experience he has had and this vision of life that's beginning now to unfold. When Bimbisara comes to meet him with many of his courtiers, the Buddha delivers a teaching. The texts don't record what he says, but as a result of which, Bimbisara becomes a stream entrant. He understands directly for himself what the Buddha is teaching. Likewise, members of his court are also enlightened by this message. And as a, a token of his, of his gratitude, he donates to the community their first centre, as it were, which is his bamboo grove in the town of Rajgaha. The Buddha now has a base. He has a community and he has a base in the greatest, most powerful realm of his time. This is an enormous achievement of a young man from a rural province of Kursala who is now being sponsored by the greatest king of the day. And it's not long before um, he attracts religious leaders from that community. One of the five ascetics, the one called Asaji, is um, reported as meeting um, a monk called Sariputta. And Sariputta asks him, what does your teacher teach? And Asaji says, he says, whatever arises is something that passes. Sariputta immediately becomes a stream entrant. (laughs) Sariputta then goes to see his uh, fellow monk and childhood friend, Moggallana, and Moggallana says, well, what does this guy talk about? And Sariputta says, whatever arises is something that passes. Moggallana becomes a stream entrant. Now, again, we can laugh, but clearly, whether this is a factual reporting of the events or not, clearly um, what the Buddha was saying was something that shook people up. It was a a departure, a very radical departure, from the Brahminical culture of his day. And again, it's not even the Buddha who has to communicate this. It's one of his followers. Sariputta and Moggallana subsequently become the two greatest disciples. And if you look at that tanka behind you, the picture of the Buddha there, the two monks to either side are Sariputta and Moggallana. So even in the Mahayana tradition, these two remain very much the key disciples. They're both from Nalanda, a town near Rajgaha. Inevitably, 
news um, of these events uh, reaches uh, Shakya itself. Uh, the Pali uh, commentaries uh, tell us that Kondanya, the one who first understood what the Buddha said, who had been present at his birth, returns during this period to Shakya and explains to the people what their, um, uh, that their protege, Siddhartha, has achieved. This prompts uh, Suddhodana, the father of the Buddha, to dispatch his counsellor Kaludaya down to Rajgir to invite the Buddha to return to his homeland, which the Buddha does. And this, again, the dating is a little tricky, but probably within the second or third year after the awakening, he returns home. And on returning home, um, he reconciles himself with his family. Of course, the texts suggest this is done through the sheer power of his teaching, um, his example, which I'm sure had something to do with it, but one cannot discount the fact that this young man who must have left in some sense of disgrace has um, thoroughly vindicated himself in his family's eyes because of this extraordinary achievement of having converted the greatest king of the time. Suddhodana, the father, is reconciled. He too becomes a stream entrant. His stepmother, Pajapati, likewise. His wife, Badakachana Bimba, whatever we call her, um, also um, is, is, is uh, reconciled, as is his son. It says, in fact, in the text, in a rather moving passage, that he tells his monks not to um, uh, uh, be concerned if his wife should embrace him physically, which she does. She, she clasps his feet and sheds tears over them, which is technically against the rule. He takes his son, Rahula, who's now about six or seven years old, again difficult to say, and allows him to join the community. And at the same time, as a result of this visit, he also attracts the interest of some of his closest relatives. Remember that Suddhodana had a brother called Amitodana. Amitodana had three sons, Ananda, Anuruddha, and Mahanama. Ananda and Anuruddha decide to join the community. Mahanama, though, remains in Shakya and one imagines becomes a key lay supporter of the community there. The other, the, the, the other um, Shakyans who join at this time are Devadatta, his cousin and brother-in-law, the son of Supabuddha, the other side of the family, across the river in Devadaha, as well as two others, Kim, uh, Kimbala and Badya. They're accompanied by a servant, Upali, who's a barber, and they return after the Buddha's left Shakya and follow him back to Rajgir. Now, it's probably around this time that the other great uh, disciple that we hear of later joins the community, and that's Ka- Kasapa, sometimes called Maha Kasapa. 
Kasapatu was a Brahmin who lived um, nearby to Rajgaha and who had renounced the world on seeing the consequences of farming. He had seen the fields ploughed and was distressed at the loss and destruction of life that followed from ploughing. So he leaves home and in the course of his wanderings he meets the Buddha and he too becomes a member of the community. So you have these three great figures, Sariputta, Moggallana and Kasapa, all three of them Brahmins from Magadha. The texts sometimes say that Sariputta is like the mother of the community. Moggallana is like its midwife. In other words, Sariputta is capable of giving uh, rise to insight and Moggallana is the one who's able to bring it forth into the world. Kasapa is sometimes, although somewhat later, described as the father of the community. And he's renowned for his, um, his skill in the minute details of form. The monastic rule, one imagines, the various precepts, and also is regarded as a very eloquent and a very convincing speaker on behalf of the Buddha's teaching. So they go back to Bamboo Grove, which has now become their base for the first years after the awakening, and one can somehow begin to see them settling down here. But what's curious from the canon is that there's very little, hardly anything, concerning the relation between the Buddha and King Bimbisara. Uh, King Bimbisara is not recorded anywhere as having any dialogues with the Buddha. And the only uh, times in the Vinaya, the monastic discipline where we hear of him, is when he um, insists that the Buddha um, not ordain anybody who's in the royal service and that he not ordain anybody who has ever been a prisoner in the royal prisons. Bimbisara is very supportive, but he doesn't want things to go too far. Now, it's around this time that um, the Buddha receives news of the death of his father, or the impending death of his father. And he, and one imagines his closer family relatives, Ananda and Anuruddha perhaps, return for the second time back to Shakya. And they arrive in time uh, to be able to see Suddhodana before he dies. The texts say that he's an arhant at his death. But politically, this marks the end of an era in this community. And as one knows from other contexts, when a great figurehead like that passes away, a vacuum of power remains in their place. And this seems to have been what happened after Suddhodana's death. Who was now going to uh, take his place as the leader, the leading figure in the local assembly? And that seems, I feel, to have given rise once again to the conflicts between the Gautamas on one bank of the river and the Kolyas on the other. 
And this conflict then um, rapidly escalates into a potential source of violence. And what triggers the um, violence itself is once again a dispute over rights to the waters from the Rohini River. We might call this the Rohini River Incident. (laughs) And this is um, a crucial moment where it looks as though there's going to be some kind of civil conflict resulting in blood between the two factions. And the Buddha finds himself in Shakya at this moment of its crisis. And so he intervenes. He, the texts say that, he, that, that, that he, he, he flies over and hovers above the river. Um, I don't personally believe that's very likely. It's, but it is, I think, um, more uh, probable that he realized that at this point, if he didn't intervene, violence would erupt. And what he, the, the way in which he resolves this issue is, um, is reported um, in a beautiful text in the Sutta Nipata. Um, and we can perhaps imagine him, um, I imagine him anyway, um, perhaps on a little raft or a little boat on the river or on the point of the dam, uh, on the little lake created by a dam there. And both sides of the community are lined up on either side of the water. And then the Buddha addresses them and he says, Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fishes in shallow water, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. Seeing people locked into conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs around in all directions. But if that thorn is taken out, One does not run or sink. It's also said in in another source that he turns to these people and he says, what's more precious to you, water or blood? And it seems that this advice, in which he points to his own understanding of how he had resolved the sources of violence within himself by somehow freeing his mind from this thorn embedded deep inside the heart, that that is how he found freedom from armed conflict as well as its deepest psychological source. And this resolved the conflict. The people put down their arms, and peace was restored. This also, though, gave rise to the first 
um, as it were, mass conversion. After this incident, and there's another text also in the Sutta Nipata, which we don't have time to look at, he finds that many of his kinsmen um, come to him and ask to join his community, the Sangha. Again, the texts are very vague about numbers, but we can imagine that a significant um, number of men, probably of all ages and all backgrounds, choose to renounce their life in Shakya and become part of the Buddha's movement. And he accepts them all. But we also have to remember that for a small farming community, the loss of a significant number of able-bodied men is going to create some impact on the sheer economy of that place. Who's going to harvest the crops? Who's going to take care of the women and the children? And then shortly after the men have been accepted into the community, the women ask to join as well. And they are headed by the Buddha's aunt and stepmother, Maha Pajapati. We'll just call her Pajapati. And she comes to the Buddha and she says, she's also accompanied, it says, by many Shakyan women, and says, can we too join your community? And she asks three times, and the Buddha says, this is an inappropriate question. I cannot accept you into the community. And they go away distressed and distraught to a life that they no longer value. Now again, is this because that would have, to have accepted the women at that point would have been too great a strain on his relations with his community? Again, we don't really know. But in any case, he refuses that the women should join. He then leaves for Veshali. And we now have him surrounded and accompanied by many of his own kinsmen. It would seem perhaps at this point that the majority of the Sangha even were Shakyans. They return from Kapalavastu down the trade route southeast until they reach the city of Veshali. Now what's curious here is that they do not return to Bamboo Grove. They do not return to Rajgaha, but they remain in Veshali. It doesn't say why. But when we're trying to understand a story in terms of its internal drama, that has to be the question we ask. You know, why did they go there? Why did they not go to where their base was in Rajgaha? They settle in Veshali, very possibly for the rains. And at a certain point, they are um, joined by Pajapati and the women. Now again, we have to just try to imagine this happening. The walk from Kapalavastu to Veshali is probably about... 200 miles. They're walking perhaps at the most maybe 10 miles a day. And we have to remember that for women to walk alone at this time in the garb of nuns would have been 
um, unprecedented. And I'll read out the, vin- the Vinaya text that describes this. And Mahapajapati the Gotami cut off her hair and put on orange-coloured robes and set out with a number of women of the Shakya clan towards Vaishali. And in due course she arrived at Vaishali at the Mahavana, the forest, at the Kutagara Hall. And Mahapajapati the Gotami, with swollen feet and covered with dust, sad and sorrowful, weeping and in tears, took her stand outside the entrance porch. And Ananda sees her, his aunt, and he asks her, why are you standing there? What are you doing? And she says, inasmuch, Ananda, as the Buddha does not permit women to renounce their homes and enter the homeless state under the doctrine and discipline proclaimed by him, I place myself here. Ananda then, one can imagine in a bit of a panic, (laughs) goes to the Buddha to find out what on earth they're going to do. And it's at this point that he makes the case for women joining the community. He says, Are women, Lord, capable, when they have gone forth from the household life and entered the homeless state, are they capable of realizing the fruit of stream entry, or of the second path, or of the third path, or of arhatship? And the Buddha says, yes, they are capable, Ananda. If then, Lord, he says, Ananda, if they're capable thereof, since Mahapajapati the Gautami has proved herself of great service to you, when as aunt and nurse she nourished you and gave you milk, and on the death of your mother suckled you at her own breast, were it not well that women should have permission to go forth from the household life and enter the homeless state? And the Buddha then agrees. Now, we have to again put this in context. This is the first time in Indian history, possibly the first time in the history of the world, that women are accepted on an equal footing to men, certainly in terms of the possibilities of their spiritual potential, to become participants in such a community. And one can imagine that this would not have gone down terribly well, certainly with the Brahmins, for whom this would have been quite unacceptable, let alone for the other non-Orthodox communities, the Jains and the Ajivakas and others, none of whom accorded women that status. So what the Buddha has now done is to create a community not just of men, but of men and women on an equal footing. It's true that he laid down certain conditions for nuns, that they would have, even an old nun of a hundred years would have to bow down to a monk of two days or something. My sense is that that was probably necessitated in order to 
implicate elements within his own community. I suspect, and we'll see later um, why I would have such a suspicion, that this did not go down very well with his Brahmin followers. In any case, we now have a very new situation, a very radical departure from all the norms of Indian religious and spiritual life. And we find them in Vaishali. After that point, there's no record of the community of the Buddha spending another rain season in Rajgaha. My sense is that it became politically impossible. Of course, he still went back there. Later on, I think he spends one or two rains at Vulture's Peak. But effectively, the Rajgir years are over. So where do they go now? It's at this point that a banker comes to their rescue. (laughs) And this is a man called Sudhata. He's often known in the texts as Anattapindika, which is actually an honorific. It means the one who takes care of the poor. And Anattapindika, and I'm going to call him Sudhata, which is his given name, had met the Buddha shortly after the awakening in Rajgaha because his sister was married to a banker in, in, uh, in Magadha. At that point, Sudhata promised the Buddha that he would provide for him a center in Shravasti, or Savati, as it's said in the spelling on your map. Now, Sudhata, therefore, was not a Magadhan. He was not from Rajgaha. He was a native of Kosala, and the leading financial entrepreneur, merchant, banker of that city. He was part of the burgeoning middle class that had arisen through the economic um, uh, developments that were taking place at that time in the Buddha's life. And we need to recall that Buddhism, in its beginnings, was in some respects, an urban phenomenon. It was addressing this newly emerging class of those who were not privileged by birth, as Brahmins, but who had somehow, through their own efforts and uh, skills, uh, generated uh, power through the generation of wealth. And Sudhata was very typical of these uh, newly emerging people. So over time, and it takes him some time to organize all of this, he buys for the Buddha in Shravasti a park, and he buys it off a man called Prince Jetta. Now Jetta, uh, the texts are quite a little bit unclear as to who this man was, but my hunch is that he was probably a brother, maybe a cousin, of the king Pasenadi. Pasenadi was the king of Kosala at that time. Sudhata purchases this park at an enormous cost. It says that he had to, he was, he had to cover the ground of the park with golden coins. Uh, I always used to imagine little coins round, but 
the coins that they used at that time were actually square. So it would literally cover the ground in gold. I also have the sense that the, the royal family, in other words, the traditional authority, was squeezing as much as they could out of this man. But he bought this place. He um, set up buildings within it, water tanks. He provided for the community. And it's um, in the 14th year after the awakening that the Buddha is invited to this extraordinary new center outside the city of Shravasti. Now remember that Shravasti is the capital of Kursala. In other words, it's the capital city of his own homeland. Shakya being a province in the far east of this country. The Buddha often, at least twice, refers to himself as a Kursalan. So now, instead of being in Magadha, which is quite some way from his homeland, he now has a base in its capital city. And it's here that he then spends the majority of his rainy seasons. Remember, the rainy season is not um, some terribly special kind of time. Um, It's just the time when it's impossible, or it was impossible in ancient India, to move around at all. The whole country becomes waterlogged and the roads get turned to mud. You don't have to choose to do a retreat in the rainy season. You don't really have much of an alternative. And so that's the period in which the monks would gather, and now the nuns too would gather, and they'd receive teaching, they would meditate, they would discuss amongst themselves. This would be the key time of the year in which their sense of community would be uh, reinforced and established. But once he uh, decides to settle in Shravasti he also enters into relationships or a key relationship with the powers that govern the state and in particular with King Persenidae. Now, unlike Bimbisara, with whom no um, dialogues are recorded, as I mentioned, with Persenidae we have a whole section of the uh, Sangyuta Nikaya, the connected discourses, which recount uh, about 20 or more um, dialogues between the Buddha and King Persenidae. Um, In fact, the texts say that for 18 consecutive rains, uh, monsoons, the Buddha stays in Anattapindaka's garden in Jetta's grove. It's clearly his main base and the place where one feels his teaching was refined and consolidated. But he depended both for his security and for the access to provisions of food and other arms upon the Kosalan state. And since this state was governed by Persenidae, it was crucial that he retained a good relationship 
with this king. Now, I'm going to go through some of the uh, discourses that help us to understand the nature of this relationship. The first um, passage in the, what's called the Kosala Sangyuta, the Connected Discourses with the Kosalan, which is the third section of the Sangyuta Nikaya, um, recounts what is probably their first meeting. And the, um, uh, it says, King Pasenadi of Kosala approached the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. And then he says, does Master Gautama claim, I have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment? And the Buddha says basically, yes, that's right. And then, then Persenadi gets a bit on his high horse and he says, look, I've met all of these teachers uh, who come around here and none of them would make such a claim and you're still so young. And then the Buddha says, there are four things, great king, that should not be despised and disparaged as young. A warrior, a snake, a fire, and a monk should not be despised and disparaged as young. Now this is a somewhat provocative stance to take with the person you know, who more or less has power over your ability to stay in his kingdom. And it's interesting that the Buddha compares himself to a warrior, a snake, and a fire. There's something quite um, potent in these images. These are images of, in a way, of, of potential destruction a fire and a snake. Again, the fire image, he said the world is burning, and now he's saying, be careful of fires, especially young fires. Just a little flame has enormous destructive potential in sweeping away and destroying what's presently there. Now, Persenidae um, seems to have taken that to heart and does not um, uh, hold that against the Buddha for having made such a statement. And in, in, in this respect, perhaps, you see one side of their relationship, a relationship grounded in a kind of mutual respect. The king realizes that this man has something to say. But nonetheless, unlike Bimbisara, who becomes a stream entrant quite quickly but really has then little to do with the Buddha thereafter, Persenides never recorded as achieving any kind of spiritual insight, certainly not stream entry, and certainly nothing above that. The only time in which Persenides follows the Buddha's advice and achieves some result thereof is in terms of his diet, Now read the text. It says, Now on that occasion, King Persenidae of Corsola had eaten a bucket measure of rice and curries. Then, while still full, huffing and puffing, the king approached the Buddha, paid homage to him, and sat down at one side. 
And then the Buddha said, when a, ma- when a man is always mindful, knowing moderation in the food he eats, his ailments then diminish. He ages slowly, guarding his life. Then King Persenadi of Kosala gradually reduced his intake of food to at most a pint pot measure of boiled rice. At a later time, when his body had become quite slim, King Persenadi of Kosala stroked his limbs with his hand and on that occasion uttered this inspired utterance. The Buddha showed compassion to me in regard to both kinds of good, the good pertaining to the present life and that pertaining to the future life. So that's as far as Persenadi gets on the (laughs) spiritual path. (laughs) Now, there are other aspects of Persenadi that are not quite so amusing. Persenadi could at times be a very respectful, one feels a, a quite humble man in the Buddha's presence, but there are other times when he shows that he is also a bit of a tyrant. And there's this occasion here when he comes to see the Buddha and he says, well, I've just been to the um, high court and I noticed that the uh, judges were lying through their teeth. So I've, and then, 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 then he says, it, I've had enough, he said, with the high court. Now, pretty face will be known by his judgments. Now, who's pretty face? It says good face here. I think pretty face sounds better. Good face is the nickname he gave to the general of his army, a man called Bandula. So he dismisses the high court judges and he puts in charge of the legal system the general of his army. But then the judges start a campaign to discredit Bandula and accuse him of seeking this post to overthrow the king. Pasenadi seems to be a bit paranoid. So he sends Bandula to a northern border to quell an uprising And when Bandala and his sons return back to Sarvati, he has them ambushed and hacked to death. But he also has a change of heart. The wife of Bandala then comes to the king, and obviously in an enormous state of distress. And the king then seems to regret what he has done. He and Bandala were actually students together in their youth. They seem to have known each other all their lifetime and now he's had his friend killed. So he says to the wife, what can I do for you? And she says, let myself and my daughters-in-law return to our country of Kusinara. And he lets them go. And in addition, he appoints as head of the army Bandala's nephew, a man called Digakarayana and he reappoints the judges back to their old positions. Now, this is very much um, characteristic of despots and tyrants, that they too are human. They have their soft side, their humble side, but they also have this dark streak of irrational violence that can break out at any time. Another example of Persenides' perfidy and tricksterishness is on an occasion 
that's recounted here in the text when he's sitting with the Buddha and um, he points out to them, uh, they say, oh, look at all of these uh, monks and uh, ascetics and Brahmins, all these renunciants of the world. Um, Now, what about you? What do you think? Do you think these people are, are really enlightened or not? And the Buddha says, it's only by living together with someone, great king, that a person's virtue can be known, and only that after a long time, not a short time, by one who's attentive, not by one who's inattentive. And then the king turns to the Buddha and says, these, venerable sir, are my spies, undercover agents, coming back after spying out the country. First, information is gathered by them, and afterwards I make them disclose it. Now, venerable sir, when they've washed off the dust and dirt and are freshly bathed and groomed, with their hair and beards trimmed, clad in white garments, they will enjoy themselves with all the pleasures of the senses I give to them. And the Buddha says, backing off a bit, a man is not easily known by his outward form, nor should one trust a quick appraisal, for in the guise of the well-controlled, uncontrolled men move in the world. Now, there's something rather sinister about all of this. (laughs) The king has effectively planted agents within the monastic community. And the Buddha isn't saying, it's not a very wise thing, great king, to plant spies in the monastic community. He's saying, you can never really be quite sure by people just by their outward appearance. He has somehow to keep this king, you know, content. But again, these little episodes reveal, I think very potently, the um, kind of person that Persenidi was. Now, Persenidi had a wife, a woman called Malika, who he had married against the advice of his court. She was a, a flower garland seller with whom he had become besotted and then married. And here we touch again upon the rather romantic nature of Persenadi, and I'll read this section. Now, on that occasion, King Persenadi of Korsala had gone together with Queen Malika to the upper terrace of the palace. Then King Persenadi of Korsala said to Queen Malika, Is there Malika anyone more dear to you than yourself? Fishing for compliments, I suspect. (laughs) And Malika says, there is no one great king more dear to me than myself. But is there any one great king more dear to you than yourself? (laughs) And Persenity thinks for a moment and says, for me too, Malika, there is no one more dear than myself. Then they go to the Buddha and they tell him what they've just said. And this is what the Buddha says. Having traversed all quarters with the mind, in other words, having looked everywhere in the world, one finds none anywhere dearer than oneself. Likewise, each person holds himself most dear. Therefore, one who loves himself should not harm others. Again, the Buddha takes this, and instead of denouncing self-love, 
turns it on its head and effectively comes out with what we're familiar with from the Gospels, do unto others as you would have them do to yourself. If you recognize that each person holds themselves most dear, then they are just like you. And just as you do not wish to be harmed, nor do they. Malika, of course being the queen, is expected, and this of course is the duty of such women, to give birth to an heir. And one day, eventually, she becomes pregnant. And this episode likewise is, um, uh, is recorded. The king is, is, is sitting there with the Buddha, and then it says, A certain man approached Persenadi and informed him in a whisper, Sir, Queen Malika has given birth to a daughter. When this was said, King Persenadi was displeased. And the Buddha says, A woman, O lord of the people, may turn out to be better than a man. She may be wise and virtuous, a devoted wife, revering her mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem was that Malika gave birth to no more children. This led the king to um, need or to desire another wife who could possibly give birth to an heir. And to indicate the extent to which the Buddha and the community around him had gained in preeminence in Shravasti during their, their stay there, he approaches, the king approaches the Shakyans and asks them if they would send him a bride. And after some negotiations, perhaps, Mahanama, remember who is the first cousin of the Buddha, the elder son of Amitodana, the brother of Anuruddha and Ananda, offers his daughter, Lady Vasubha, in marriage to the king. Now this is, an, again, an extraordinary um, development in the prestige of the Shakyan community around the Buddha in the capital of their very own city. And it means that the Buddha and Ananda and Anuruddha are effectively being um, brought into the royal family itself through marriage. But we also have to remember that the Shakyans were a very proud people, descended from the god of the sun, as they believed. And the Shakyan women, when they heard of this request, were appalled. They refused to be married outside of their clan, even to the king of the land. So they agreed to Mahanama sending a daughter, but not a daughter of royal lineage, but a daughter that he had fathered with a slave woman in his employ called Nagamunda. So they passed off to Pasenadi, <laughs> the daughter of a slave, and pretended that she was in fact a Shakyan noblewoman. 
And that's where we'll leave the story today. This talk was given by Stephen Batchelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 25, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.